0: We are continuing in our series verse by verse through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John 11, verse 38, and we'll pick up there in a moment as we near the midpoint. In the Gospel of John. By way of reminder, uh, this Gospel account can be broken down into roughly four sections. You've got chapter 1, which is also known as the prologue. You remember John's famous language of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the prologue, sort of the introduction that sets up what he's doing. The first half of the book, roughly, is known as the Book of Signs. That's chapters 2 through 12. That's what we've been working through for most of the last few months, and we are concluding very soon. Uh, then we'll go into the second half of the book, which is called the Book of Exaltation, or Glory, and that will focus on really the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, including the cross Uh, and the resurrection that then follows. And then he has an epilogue at the end, which sort of uh, wraps up the account that he's written. And this first half of the book that we've been journeying through is called the Book of Signs, because in this first half, uh, John captures an escalating series of signs in which Jesus reveals himself to the Jewish nation. And in this, at the beginning of that series, in chapter 2, it actually starts in a very quiet way, in a very hidden way. Uh, Jesus is in Galilee, way kind of off the beaten path, uh, and he's at a wedding, and he turns water into wine at that wedding. That's the first sign that John records for us. Uh, but even in that little uh, back corner of the uh, nation, the people at the wedding don't even truly know what has happened. So it starts with a sign that's very off the beaten path. It's very secretive. But then if you go back and reread those chapters and look at the signs that we've been studying and unpacking over the last few months, you'll see that they become more and more public and that Jesus becomes more and more obvious in what he does and what he says. Uh, And though Jesus did and perhaps said things, hundreds or even thousands of things that would have been worth recording and would be uh, encouraging to us in our faith john has chosen uh, seven signs that he's handpicked and highlighted for us through the first half of this book and that number seven is not a random or incidental it's actually significant from the perspective of the author. He's chosen seven because in the Jewish culture in which he's writing, uh, seven signified completion or fullness or wholeness. If you think of the word sufficiency or the language even of full and final revelation, that's embedded for them in this concept of Seven. And so in a sense, John, the author, is saying, hey, this is all you need in order to believe. This is sufficient. Seven is enough. And these seven signs uh, started back in chapter two with turning water into wine. But it culminates with the seventh sign here in chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Which is perhaps his greatest, most public, most obvious sign that he is who he says he is. If you were here last week, uh, I wasn't, but if you were here, you'll remember that Evan Parton unpacked the first half of the story of Lazarus. And in that first half, we see that Jesus' friend Lazarus is in a different place in another city. Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick and that it's quite serious. Jesus gets this word and hears about it and says essentially, hey, don't worry, this sickness will not result in death. And then he dies. Which is confusing for the disciples, right? Right? Okay, you literally just said it won't result in death, and now he's dead. So I guess we go to the funeral. They show up late to a multi-day funeral, and then, this is still from the verses from last week, uh, we see Jesus, and I think in one of his sweetest, most tender moments within the ministry that John has captured, we see Jesus at the funeral with the family, genuinely weeping and mourning with them. You have to think about that from the perspective of Jesus. He's already told the disciples, so they don't understand. He's already told them, hey, this is going to display the glory of God. He already knows in his heart uh, that Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And yet he enters into this place of pain with the family. He sits with them in their anguish, in their pain. Even though this is going to be reversed, death is still a tragedy. And, and the family is mourning, and he is mourning with them. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out that this is actually his heart posture to you and I as well. That when we're uh, mourning, anxious, and depressed, or weeping, when we're in our difficult moments, That's actually Jesus' heart posture toward you, that he comes to be with you, to sit in that place. He knows that that's not the end, and yet he comes and he sits with you in solidarity in that place. And that's what he's doing here. We see Jesus full of compassion, uh, mourning with the family. And this is what we read next. This is the second uh, half of the story. This is chapter 11, starting in verse 38. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for coming into humanity, for revealing yourself in the way that you have, for Uh, highlighting for us and even uh, reminding John of the things that happened so that we might be uh, encouraged and uh, set apart from the world and the ways of thinking in the world, ushered into uh, the counterintuitive truth of the kingdom of God, of the true nature of the reality that we live in. And as we uh, think about these things and contemplate these things, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would meet us here this morning. There are so many forces and so many voices that are attempting to mark us and shape us and uh, tell us what they believe is the true nature of reality. Uh, But if this is true, Lord, if this is really true, then we want you to be here and be present. And uh, as Paul would say, open the eyes of our hearts. We're here because we desire you, because we desire the truth, because we want everything else to be stripped away, even if it's painful. So would you stir something deep in our hearts? Would you uh, alert us to reality as it actually is? In Jesus' name, amen. At 10 a.m. on Monday morning, Robert Cremo opened fire on a crowd that had gathered to watch a 4th of July parade outside of Chicago. With dozens wounded and seven dead, this shooting marks just one of 300 mass shootings that have happened in our nation this year alone. 300 in the last six months. That's almost two a day. And in the aftermath of this shooting, like the aftermath of almost every mass shooting, the pressing question on so many people's minds is why? Why did they do it? Why would anyone pick up an assault rifle and fire it into a crowd? And while the answer to that question is layered and complicated, while it often involves uh, the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological makeup of a shooter, all of it is rooted in narrative. We do what we do as a result of what we believe. Or, said another way, every human being has to answer basic questions about life in the universe Uh, Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I headed? What is my purpose? What is life all about? By answering these questions, and all of us as we grow have to answer these questions, by answering these questions, we form a story in our minds and then we live out that story. We live as an actor in the story that we have assumed. Each and every one of us, by necessity of being human, needs a story to live and we cannot help but live out of the story that we have formed within our minds. The problem is that we can become completely convinced of stories that are inaccurate reflections of reality. And I would argue that every single mass shooter has done what they have done because they have believed a false narrative about the reality in which they are living. Here's just one example, a sample of what one narrative could sound like. Matter created itself Humans were formed accidentally through evolution. I have no meaning. I have no purpose. I have no intrinsic value. But neither does anyone else. Life is all about me. I'm the only thing that matters. I can do what I want and this is what I want. Months before Monday. Robert Cremo was writing about mass shootings, and he said, quote, I just need to do it. It is my destiny. He was living a story, a false story about the nature of reality. And as our country culturally drifts from the biblical narrative and embraces a materialistic, atheistic, Darwinistic, naturalistic, consumeristic approach to life, I'm actually anticipating more craziness, not less. Jesus once famously said, you will know a tree by its fruit and he explained in that context that a good tree cannot help but produce good fruit but that a bad tree cannot help but produce bad fruit in other words sooner or later false teachers or false worldviews will expose themselves as false by what they produce Uh, They cannot hide for long. They cannot hold their breath. A false worldview cannot go on faking good fruit for very long. Eventually, it will produce bad fruit because that's what the system is designed to produce. And over the course of the last century, uh, the growing and dominant life narrative in the Western world has been one rooted in Darwinistic materialism. And we can see now with a century of data that it has produced staggering fruit in the form of everything from the Holocaust to to communist death camps to mass anxiety uh, to the morphing and erosion of morality itself. which is now treated as a cultural construct with no grounding in external or objective reality. In other words, we invented morality as evolved and evolving animals, and therefore we can reinvent morality in any way that we see fit. This is the fruit of a system of thinking of a narrative tree of the story that we tell ourselves, at least in the Western world. But here's the good news. The good news is that atheism is false. That Darwin was wrong. That the real story is far better than anything that we could have dreamed up on our own and that real story is playing out in this morning's text. The sign that Jesus performs for the Jewish nation is actually shocking and almost annoying to the Jewish nation. And the reason for their reaction is that it comes uh, to undermine their narrative it conflicts with their story, with their version of reality. And when something conflicts with your version of reality, you either repent and change course, you either adjust the story that you're telling yourself about life in the universe, or you reject the evidence and continue to live by your false version of the story. And we see this playing out in the gospel accounts. Their cultural narrative said that the religious leaders and the temple are the center of our lives. They are what is right. They are what is true. Uh, They are uh, what is uh, blessed by God. And anything working outside of that system or anything that has come to challenge or undermine that system, by definition must be false, it, it, it can't be true. That's, that's the story, that's their narrative lens through which they were seeing the, wor- the world. And so when their narrative lens clashed with Jesus, they had a decision to make. Do we revise our story? Do we repent in the biblical language and change course and follow him? Or do we cling to our version of the story and reject Jesus and all of the signs and miracles which he is performing? That's the tension inherent in the first 12 chapters of the book. What is the Jewish nation going to do? And something similar is happening in today's culture. We live in a culture that is increasingly embedded in philosophical naturalism in which darwinian evolution is the background assumption not just for science but for law and politics and gender studies and everything else in life is now being grounded in those assumptions we live in a culture in which natural laws and empirical data are given almost godlike status. They are what is true. They are what matters. And anything operating outside of that system, anything that would seek to undermine that system, by definition, must be false. Jesus and his miracles and his signs lie outside of the very definition of naturalistic truth. And so like the Pharisees and the system that they're working in, they now have a choice to make. Are we going to repent? Are we going to change the story by which we're living? Are we going to adjust to fit this new data that's coming in? Or are we going to reject those things outright? And it's not hard to see that on a cultural level, our society has chosen the second option. They've chosen to reject Jesus, to reject the Gospels, to reject the signs and miracles, to come up with an alternative explanation for those things so that they don't have to adjust the story by which they're living. There's simply no room for those things within the worldview that they've created and... There's no room for them to question their own worldview. The problem is that this happened. There was a real man named Lazarus who sat in a tomb for four days. His flesh was dead and rotting. The stench of that place. Most of us have never smelled something as horrific as the smell that would have come out of that tomb as they rolled the stone away. And then Jesus prayed and called out in a loud voice Lazarus, come out. And he did. Whatever happened in that tomb, in that moment, defied every natural law on the books. As Lazarus literally walked out of the tomb, alive again. But if this really happens, then in order to live accurately in this world, we have to live within this frame. We have to live in light of this reality, in everything that we experience. Sickness and death, mourning and joy, faith and skepticism, work and parenting, studying and going to the gym, loving your neighbor and your family, paying your bills and engaging on social media, everything that you say and think and do then needs to be done within this resurrection frame. Because this is real. This happens. It happened to Lazarus. It happened to Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, it will happen to you. One day, not long from now, you will die. Your life will slip from your physical body. The things that you labored over in this world will be handed off to someone else. The flesh and bones that you now operate out of that are a part of you will decompose or be burned into ash. And within a few short years, the people living in this place will forget that you ever existed. Just here to cheer you up this morning. But when that happens, the atheists and agnostics, who are your family members and your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends, will have nothing to say. Well, that sucks. Life is short and then you die. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. they will have nothing meaningful to say in that moment. Just as they have nothing to say to mass shootings or cancer victims or car accidents or anything else. The culture that you live in now has nothing to say to death. no hope beyond that moment. But walking across the chaotic sea of Western culture is Jesus of Nazareth. And he does have something to say. I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Or do you believe something else? Something different? Something less because believe it or not there will be a resurrection of the dead there will be a time when Jesus returns in glory and in effect says over your tomb Jenny come out Richard come out Carry, come out, and you will. You see, raising Lazarus from the dead was more than a miracle. John was right. It was a sign. You see, a sign is more than a miracle. It points, it's transcendent. It points to something beyond. It points to something bigger than the circumstances in which it takes place. And by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was pointing forward to his own resurrection, to the unthinkable moment when his stone would be rolled back and God would reverse the death sentence, conquering death itself through his son. It was pointing forward to the moment when Jesus would again walk the earth in a resurrected body. And Jesus' resurrection itself points forward and makes possible the resurrections of everyone who follows after Him. It points forward to the day when you and I will walk on a new earth in resurrected bodies. And if we catch hold of that story, in fact, only if we catch hold of that story, will we live rightly in this world. You are not living in an accidental universe in a purposeless world as a highly evolved animal. But if you believe that, whether you want to or not, you will then live as if it is true. Instead, you are living in a highly intentional world in which everything is loaded with purpose and meaning. You live in a world, everything that happens in your life, everything that you can or will experience is happening between Jesus' resurrection and your resurrection. That's the frame, that's the story, that's the narrative in which we live. If we lose sight of that story, we will live in a way that does not make sense. If we are alerted to that story, if we catch wind of it, then we have a chance to live in this life in a way that actually makes sense based on what's coming. This is your story. This is your narrative. Now we go and live as an actor in that world in the world of resurrection let's pray i'll just invite you as we close to take a deep breath I want you to conceptualize in your mind that you are going to die. And maybe if you're visual like me, you can try and picture that moment in your mind's eye. could be tomorrow, could be next week, could be decades from now, but whenever it is, I want you to try to picture that moment, your last days, your last moments, when your final breaths are slipping away. When all the things of this world begin to fade and I want you to picture What happens next. As the things of this world fade completely, as the life slips from your physical body, I want you to picture, if you can, what happens next. See, what do you sense? What do you believe is waiting for you in that moment? Who is waiting for you in that moment? You're picturing that place. And and the people who will be there waiting for you, what that will feel like, what that will look like. I want you to move it in reverse. I want you to rewind from that moment back through the years. For some of you, it will be decades that you still have to live and back into this moment. How do you want to live in this moment based on what's to come? You love, the things you chase, the things you fear, all of them need to be held up against the unshakable future of resurrection. Can you do that this morning? hold the real, raw, momentary things of this life up against the backdrop of the resurrection that's coming. Only if our sights are set on that future place will we know how to live today. The way we love the way we manage money, the way we engage with others, the things that we value, the things that we run to, the things that we run from, the many narratives that we've been telling ourselves day in and day out, I want you to take those things captive and subject them, place them under the reality of Jesus the resurrection. I want you to hear these words spoken over you. This is what he speaks in front of the tomb of Lazarus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus, we submit our lives to you this morning. And we see if only for a moment through the clouds and the fogginess of life, may we see that you are the resurrection, that you are the life, that you come with those things in your hand, that you know us by name, and that if we've given our lives to you that is our future. To some of us it feels very natural to acknowledge that, oh yes of course I live in light of that. To some of us even as followers of Jesus that feels very foreign to us this morning. That feels very confusing. That seems to conflict with the assumptions that we've made about reality. So come, Holy Spirit, and sort out within our hearts the stories by which we live. May we see death and not fear it. May we see resurrection and grab hold of it, Lord. It cannot be a theological concept in a textbook somewhere. God, it has to be a beating reality inside of our hearts. One day I will be resurrected. God, help me to live in light of that moment. May we release the bitterness and unforgiveness, so silly that we carry those things in light of the resurrection that is to come. May you release us, Lord, from the things that we fear, from the things that grip us, from strongholds of addiction and pain and and fear over finances and whatever it is. Holy Spirit, would you come now as we worship you? Would you do the work that only you can do? Would you do the work of setting us free to be a resurrection people, to be people who are not yet resurrected because we have not died, but who know that it's coming and who live in a very curious, counterintuitive, beautiful, and truthful way because we know what's on the horizon. Wake us up, Lord. Wake us up. In Jesus' name. Amen.